Hello and welcome to Scanner Today's Last Week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Kurenkov. I recently finished my PhD at Stanford, where I studied AI and robotics, and I now work at a generative AI startup. And hey, peeps, my name is Jeremy. I'm your other, uh, I was going to say co-founder, co-host. Uh, and <laughs> I just Not a co-founder. Like, not, not a co-founder. Yeah, 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 I jumped the ship. Um, yeah, I, I think my brain's there. I was in San Francisco uh, last week, which is why we kind of didn't have an episode, but sort of did, because we did that uh, episode on AI safety where we had We a, recorded a it. I still haven't edited it, but ah. it's coming out soon. XAI <laughs> episode coming out probably within a week, so that's exciting. Yeah, yeah. That was fun. That was a really fun chat, actually. Um, so anyway, yeah, back back in the saddle and, and excited for this uh, latest iteration. There's definitely some interesting stuff happening around open source and like a cool trend, I think, around... Um, kind of self-alignment with language models and stuff like that that we'll get to. Anyway, I don't want to spoil it. So anyway, Andre, you you know what to do. You're one yeah. of the co-founders of this thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, first, actually, a quick programming note. We did skip one episode, but for any regular listeners, this might actually be a good thing. I'm going to try and bump up a release schedule instead of releasing on sort of Tuesdays. I'm going to try to make it so it's on Thursdays or Fridays. So we basically get to renews quicker. Uh, we usually lag by a decent amount of time between when the news story comes out and when we get an episode that discusses it. So uh, yeah, we're recording this on Thursday. I'm going to try to get it out today or tomorrow. And then uh, this stuff I'll be discussing will be pretty fresh. I, I do want the, the fine people who listen to the Last Week in AI podcast, and by the way, you have great taste, um, to, to recognize Andre puts in so much work in the back end to like edit all this stuff and like prep the notes for the, like it is a huge amount of work. So, you know, round of applause every, okay, they can't, they can't do it, but I'm just going to put it there. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. If only I could do my job, but surprisingly <laughs> not yet. Uh, and yeah, speaking to our listeners, uh, as always, you want to give a quick shout out to listener comments and corrections. Uh, I did get around to replying to a few emails. There's a lot of emails I still aim to reply to, but I haven't got around to. But uh, there were a few people who specifically asked for an extra episode. So that is now coming, which is cool. And we have a new, uh, a few new reviews on Apple Podcasts from oh. uh, Smart Smart Aces and Chiang My Guy and Boomer AI Immigrant, uh, which is fun. And yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, nice, positive comments. People that seem to appreciate this being kind of very detailed and long and kind of approachable. So thanks for the feedback. As always, as always you can leave us feedback by leaving a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or email us at contact at lastweekin.ai with any thoughts, suggestions, or just uh, feedback. I, sometimes I don't get around to responding for a week or two, maybe even three, but I do keep an eye out for that stuff. All right, so that is it for the intro. Let's get into news.
Starting with tools and apps, we have 11 Labs comes out of beta and releases 11 multilingual V2 and a foundational AI speech model for nearly 30 languages. So 11 Labs is probably the front runner for speech synthesis as far as online tools go. You input some text and you can select a voice or you can add your own voice or someone else's voice and the AI will make audio from the text that has that voice and it is very good from what i've seen from what i've actually played around with it it is uh, very good and yeah now apparently they're out of beta and they're releasing this new tool that supports many more languages and uh, i think it's a pretty big deal yeah, it definitely seems that way. I uh, I did play around with this a little bit too. I I was really impressed with how they preserved kind of the the character, the the essence, if you will, of the speaker in one language, uh, and and kind of ported that into the others. So there was like some consistency. It was as if the same the same person was speaking. Um, and they're expanding their portfolio to include like a whole bunch of languages that seem very important that they didn't have before. So previously they had like English, Polish, German, Spanish, French, Italian, Hindi, and Portuguese. And now they're adding Chinese. So that's going to be a really big deal. Um, and uh, Japanese, I'm looking at some of the more po- kind of you know, popularly spoken one, classical Arabic, uh, Tamil. Uh, anyway, so it's really cool and speaks to that challenge that we've talked about on the show before but of kind of getting models that can speak many different languages because there's such a shortage of data for especially some of the rarer language um, that you really need a, a model that's kind of uh, primed already with a decent amount of training, usually on other languages, so it can benefit from uh, from kind of like the what it's already learned, say reading English and Chinese text as it goes on to learn those, those other languages. So really cool development. Yeah, and I think for this sort of thing in particular, right, uh, things like ChatGPT and and most foundation models can do many languages, especially like big languages like Chinese uh, or, uh, you know, other popular ones, Spanish, I suppose. Uh, They kind of learn that out of the box just by virtue of the web scraping that you get. But when you get tasks that involve audio, like speech synthesis, right, that's not quite as easy to get data for. So then you need to be much more, uh, let's say, deliberate about trying to get data to train your model to be able to speak all these languages. And then you also get into all these complications of, of course, you know, there's a big difference in the input uh, alphabet for these things. So yeah, it's really impressive. And uh, personally, I'm looking forward to even more memes from this of like, the U.S. presidents playing Minecraft or whatever. I'm a big fan. Uh, I've, I've, <laughs> there's like the U.S. presidents doing uh, tier lists of video game characters. There's a lot of this stuff on YouTube. Oh my god! I always find it pretty hilarious. Yeah, impressionists are going to be out of a job soon. <laughs> yeah, at least as far as pure audio goes, for sure. Yeah. All right. Next story, we got Meet Lily, our generative AI tool that's a researcher, a time saver, and an inspiration. This is from McKinsey, the consulting group. And yeah, they have this tool called Lily that is pretty much for search and synthesis of knowledge from McKinsey that I imagine they are going to sell to clients. Uh, so yeah, it's it's a new interface, I guess, to McKinsey. 
Kinsey Knowledge. I'm sure they publish many, many, many reports that are you have to pay for. So I guess this is your easy way to browse all of that. Yeah, and you know, it's it's also kind of interesting. This is part of an ecosystem of consulting companies getting deeper into the kind of language modeling space. Um, there was that big announcement. I think this was back in in February or anywhere earlier in the year, where um, I think Bain, yeah, it was it was Bain and Company that partnered with OpenAI to kind of like do their big push into generative AI. Um, so kind of interesting that uh, McKinsey's gone the path here of doing some internal development it seems, to, to set up their own uh, system. And it matches like one strategy that we've seen, which is like the more closed source, like proprietary uh, internal stuff that um, uh, maybe contrasts with uh, just, hey, like anybody can use our thing as an API. This is like, you know, it, at least it's not clear whether it's going to be released as an API as far as I can tell. Yeah, I don't know if they, they explicitly uh talk about this uh, about how exactly the business model will be here they seem to just announce the existence of this from what i've read uh but yeah it uh, as you say is kind of more closed source they say in this blog post that it is trained on the firm's intellectual property so there will be more than a hundred thousand documents and interview transcripts containing both internal and third-party contact with all these experts and so on. So yeah, this is the sort of thing that I guess they'll try to sell to business leaders and so on. Also, fun fact, Lily is named after Lillian Dombrowski, the first professional woman hired by McKinsey in 1945, who went out to become the controller and corporate secretary for a firm. So cool name. It continues a trend of like uh, the naming of these AI systems being like kind of a big deal for some some of these companies. Sort of interesting. Um, and moving on to the lightning round, we have Google tests an AI assistant that offers life advice. So that's pretty much a story. Not too much here. Google is testing this thing that uh, offers things like idea creation, tutoring, and planning. Uh, the safety experts have, of course, warned about this is probably not a good idea to offer life advice, given what we know about language models. So I'm sure this is just one of many, many experiments within Google on stuff they could release. Yeah, and, and you know, consistent with this whole racing dynamic that we've seen, especially sparked by ChatGPT's release, you know, Google feels like they have no choice. They're having to rush these things out of production. Um, so there's there's a sense in which... You know, all these uh, ethical arguments that were made about caution uh, with respect to technology like this are now kind of uh, seem at least to be um, being waved off. Maybe that reflects some, you know, alignment uh, improvements. Maybe it reflects some underlying technological shifts. But um, the vibe, at least of this article, seems to be that, hey, you know, we're just going ahead with this now because of the racing dynamics. Um, it's sort of interesting that they, they flagged, like the way they describe it, by the way, this tool kind of seems like a, a substitute. If you've ever been to Reddit, like relationship advice or one of those subreddits, uh, it kind of made me think like, you know, we've seen what, what's happened to stack overflow. Um, maybe with Reddit, you know, is it possible we'll see death by a thousand cuts with systems like this gradually chipping away at different, um, uh, different subreddits, different threads and stuff like that. But, um, sort of something that remains to be seen, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's another instance of like the the kinds of ethical questions that come up in this in, in this AI arms race. I think that's the single biggest take home for me here. 
Next story is Runway launches new watch feature as CEO says Hollywood AI discourse needs to be more nuanced. So we've touched on Runway a fair amount of times. It's a company that is releasing AI tools for video creation for the most part. So they do video editing, uh, video special effects, lots of this sort of stuff. There's a whole suite of things. Uh, they do text-to-video, which we've covered a couple times. And yeah, this article is about this new feature they have that allows people to watch things, <laughs> you know. Uh, and there's not much more on this feature. Uh, it just allows users to share and consume longer-form videos that are created the Runway tools. The rest of the article is really an overview about Runway, its history, and, and so on. It's a pretty good overview, but as far as news, there's not much beyond this feature. And next, we have the AI-powered Adobe Express is now generally available. So this is um, these new AI-powered features in Adobe Express that previously were only available, um, I guess, in beta and now are being released more broadly. Um, they've released features that are powered by their generative model, Firefly. So we've talked about Firefly in previous um, episodes. Now I'm trying to remember. Uh, do you remember if Firefly is, uh, it generates images, right? Okay, cool. So Firefly is a generative model that produces images. And if I recall correctly, actually, this was um, the one that Adobe was leaning on to make their claim that, hey, you know what, we will indemnify anyone who uses our gender generated images you don't need to worry about getting sued for copyright we'll support you in court basically if you do get sued um, so this is kind of the the broader rollout you know maybe if that indemnification thing uh, holds if, if they're they're still offering that to uh, their customers you know maybe this increases their legal exposure in some way I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the details of the indemnity story are with respect to this because they don't necessarily talk about it but um, yeah, it'll be really interesting from a legal standpoint to see where, where Firefly ends up going. Yeah, it's a pretty affordable monthly subscription. I'm not sure exactly the price. They have a $10 tier. I'm not sure if that includes regenerative AI. Uh, but either way, this is a nice, accessible, you know, well-made tool for image editing and text-to-image uh, that I imagine many professionals will opt for instead of let's say more mm, not adobe-esque software like midjourney that yeah. you have to use for discord or something next we have snapchat is expanding further into generative ai with dreams so there's a new feature in snapchat that is dreams users will be able to take or upload selfies and the app will generate new pictures of them in imaginative backgrounds uh, that just places users in these fantastical places and scenarios. Kind of a, a, a no-brainer, I would say, and uh, I guess a lot of people will be playing around with this uh, coming forward. Yeah, and they do talk about uh, sort of similar apps that are already on the App Store um, and highlight one called Rimini, uh, which I actually missed the story. So apparently what viral on TikTok last month, um, people figured out that they could like take their selfies and use the, those selfies via this app to turn them into professional looking headshots. So they don't have to pay for like a pro shoot. Um, that's kind of interesting, especially as you start to think about the interactions between different apps and tools. Uh, things you know can get automated all of a sudden when you combine things together. So kind of kind of cool, but uh, yeah, not not much more to this. And I agree, kind of a uh, something you would expect to happen naturally.
Yeah, I think the one thing that is interesting to me is, as we have often touched on, the economics of this. Because uh, as with language models, um, image generation relies on pretty significant compute. You need to pay for GPUs in the cloud. And when you have a massive, you know, hundreds of millions of users, uh, user base, and you allow all of them to create these AI images, that is a lot of money. So it'll be interesting to see what they do here. Are they going to lock this behind a paywall for a premium tier? Are they going to limit your ability to uh, create these things? I'm curious to see how that goes. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. It, it's kind of like, it makes me think of um, how, you know, venture capital often like subsidizes startups like Uber for a really long time and effectively like they're, their money becomes our money as we get to consume these these products for less than they actually cost to produce. And here, you know, like for Uber, it makes sense because you're saying, okay, we'll build up a critical mass. You know, we'll we'll have a marketplace, and by the time we start charging, it's almost impossible for people to go off platform or, or whatever. Obviously, Lyft kind of challenges that idea, but um, this is sort of challenging because you know you want to be the first mover, but it's not necessarily clear how much of a moat that buys you, just because it becomes you know six months later so much cheaper for other people to do the exact same thing as the price of compute goes down. So like, yeah, I, I'm really curious, like what the equation is going to turn out to be, whether in retrospect, we'll see this as like a, an almost reckless use of funds. Um, but hey, these experiments have got to be run. So uh, we're going to find out. Indeed. Uh, I think this is not quite out yet. This article is about it is forthcoming. But as you say, it's it's going to be here soon. And the last story for this section, we have NCSoft's new AI suite is trained to streamline game production. I found this to be pretty interesting. NCSoft is a Korean video game company, and it has developed four new AI large language models. And this suite is called, we have Varco LLM, Varco Art, Varco Text, and Varco Human. So they're not all language models, actually. And these tools generate lifelike uh, NPCs, non-playable characters, storylines, dialogue, and digital humans. So this is for generating text, you know, 2D art, uh, 3D modeling, kind of a lot of stuff. And uh, yeah, looking at the article, it's, it's pretty impressive to see the suite. Yeah, and uh, very specific application of this stuff. Something too that falls very much in your uh, in your area, Andre, with the uh, the video game. I guess you, you can't. I'm I'm curious as a, a guy who who you know focuses on exactly this space. Do you find yourself looking actively for tools like this on a day to day, or um, is is the is the platform switch too much? Is the lift too much? Like what what does that look like in your uh, workflow? Yeah, so I do work at a company that is using generative AI for uh, video games. I won't, you know, disclose any secrets, but let's just say if you look at things like Midjourney or some of these uh, other existing things, it's surprising how bad they are at actually creating usable assets. Like they're not optimized to be really usable in, let's say, video game production. They can give you good concept art but not something you just plop in a game. So I'm curious to see if that is something they fixed with this or if it's just another kind of pretty much off-the-shelf 2D image generator, uh, but definitely for some of this 3D modeling stuff and so on, uh, it looks like 
beyond anything I've seen in this realm. Interesting. All right. Well, moving on to applications in business now, we have Gartner places generative AI on the peak of inflated expectations on the 2023 hype cycle for emerging technologies. And I will always say this, anytime I'm looking for cutting edge, relevant input on the state of generative AI, I think I got to go talk to a big consulting company. Uh, so Gartner, this is their opinion. I take this so seriously. Um, anyway, no, Gartner is great. Uh, you know, no, no shade on Gartner. I'm just joking around. All right. Uh, they've got their hype cycle. So uh, just to kind of, uh, if you haven't seen these things before, they're like the classic uh, consultant diagram of like, you've got early stage innovations that have really kind of low expectations. People aren't super tracking them. They're not hyped up. Um, so here they put things like neurosymbolic AI, uh, augmented FinOps, so so I guess fintech operations, um, all kinds of stuff that like you know people aren't super jazzed about. And then essentially they they moved like they move up the hype cycle essentially. So expectations as these technologies mature go up at first. And so at the very peak you've got things like cloud native AI, augmented software engineering. So you can think there are things like Codex. Um, and then generative AI more broadly. I don't know why those are split up quite the way they are because one seems to include the other. But anyway, there's API-centric SaaS. There's a bunch of stuff. Uh, that's at the peak. And then on the other end, as these technologies mature more, the idea is that eventually you kind of like see the rubber meet the road and you go, oh, this thing did not actually turn into the world-changing technology that I expected it to. And so you enter the trough of dis disillusionment. And then a little bit later, you kind of rediscover these things as they mature even more and then actually start to solve real-world use cases, eventually reaching what is known as the plateau of productivity. Um, not all tech, needless to say, actually follows this kind of cycle, but this is just kind of an aid to, uh, to conceptualize things. And so Gardner's argument here is that generative AI and kind of similarly AI augmented software engineering, which is a subset of it, are right at the peak. Like basically people are fired up about them. The implication seems to be that we are about to see a real crash in expectations from these systems as they mature a little bit more. You'd expect them to reach the trough of disillusionment phase. Um, so that's kind of this interesting, uh, this interesting question. I think part of what we talked about, right, Andre, in our um, uh, AI Extrask episode, you know, really part of that implicitly was: Are we in that stage of inflated expectations? Um, is generative AI actually going to pay off in the next two to three years? Um, I think this is an interesting question. I, I tend to fall on a different side of the coin, I think, from Gartner on this one. Um, though I think some applications probably are. We just talked about a couple, right? The the cost to benefit of using highly, highly expensive computational resources to churn out like images that, you know, maybe don't necessarily have enough value added to justify it. Um, but I think one of the key questions is how quickly will the market figure out which applications to channel that expensive compute into and which to use, say, cheaper models or no models at all and just kind of wait for the computations to become cheaper overall. Yeah, I thought this was a nice article to highlight more as an excuse for us to chat about it than anything particularly interesting or deep here. I mean, of course, a lot of people did point to this. I agree that there's, you know, you can easily debate and discuss this particular choice. I think the notion that AI augmented software engineering is going to go through a trough is probably not true. It's like just already here. It's already at the so-called plateau of productivity where yeah. people are just, you know, it's actually useful 
Um, so in my mind, as far as I understand, this trough or disillusionment is like you expect the technology to revolutionize or immediately have impact, and then you realize that it requires more development and, and so on. Some aspects of generative AI, sure, I think that's true. Other aspects, not so much. Of course, we we know like speech synthesis, a lot of things are going full steam ahead, and I don't think there will be much disillusionment. So yeah, generative AI is just way too broad a label. I think in some cases, you definitely can slow down a bit. Things like, let's say, therapy, I don't know that. Yeah, uh, but for many other things like software engineering, like translation, obviously, which I guess already was the case to some extent, um, um, like writing marketing copy or uh, researching legal briefs, it's just already here and it's only being expanded and approved by various players. So it's, yeah, it's just like not a, great fit for this particular model, but it's a fun little thought exercise. Well, but that itself, I think, is really interesting, right? Like, why is it? Because it seems um, it's not that all technologies follow this kind of curve where there's like hype and then there's a crash. And then eventually over time, long after people have forgotten about the hype, it kind of reemerges. Um, not all technologies follow that, but a lot of them do. I think it's interesting that certain forms of generative AI do seem to have flipped from nobody's ever heard of this to like, it's now in everybody's day-to-day workflow. It's literally causing the uh, the kind of uh, stock value of, of Stack Overflow to crash by fifty percent. Like that's how pervasive it is. I wonder if like part of this is you know if you think about the space of products that's historically been accessible to us, we've always had technologists like startup founders reaching for something that's just like just within reach technologically, and then and then just building their way to that slightly out of reach thing. Whereas here. It's almost like the cheapness of compute, the abundance of compute, and our ability to channel it into useful things using things like transformers, um, all of a sudden unlocked a whole new subspace that we'd never touched before, like very green pastures. And in that massive space, basically, like we find ourselves with tons of technological overhang. So we can all of a sudden do this like a la carte menu, you know, of, of super valuable things like, you know, language translation. Hey, that's all, you know, generative AI now, you know, or at least the best ways to do it. Um, like you said, you know, the, the mid journey stuff, the um, marketing copywriting, the coding, like all that stuff. Um, it's, it seems like it all came all of a sudden. And in a sense, I suspect it's because it's on the back of really like this one technological innovation, which is compute getting a lot cheaper. And sorry, yes, there's a bunch of stuff around transformers too. I don't want to kind of, <laughs> I don't want to downgrade the importance of that. But it's sort of like this one set of technologies that's enabled a cluster of things, and that's different from what we've seen historically. You know, maybe electricity, maybe other things like that, general purpose technologies. But um, I wonder if that's kind of part of it here. Yeah, I feel like it may. I actually can think of this as a little more gradual. I do wonder if. You know, if you look at this graph, it starts at zero, then it climbs up, and it reaches a peak, then it goes down. I would probably put this start around GPT-2. Uh, GPT-2 right. was, for people keeping up with AI, it was like the first moment there was a hint of the power of this sort of generative AI, I would say. And even before that, we have GANs that were discussed a lot with deepfakes and so on. 
So I think there was a bit of a, let's say, slightly more gradual transition, and people were starting to explore these things in 2021. 2022 was already kind of accelerating. And maybe like the key point that feels true in this article is that now we are at the peak. Like, <laughs> can you get any more hype? Uh, as far as where we are, doesn't seem like it. But uh, yeah, I think it's it's been a bit of a road that may not be apparent. I, that's a really good point. It's almost like it depends on the community that you're thinking about. Like academics were and AI people were like super jazzed about GPT-2 back then. And yeah, we probably went through this phase. We're like, holy shit, like uh, you know, GPT-3 is going to be the blah, blah, blah. And it turned out not to be, you know, maybe for us, GPT-3 or GPT-2 is the peak of inflated expectations. And then, you know, but it kind of seems like for the general public, uh, you know, we're, we're both seeing the hype and the productivity at the same time. And I think that's part of what makes this so confusing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess you can uh, feel free to make up your mind, listeners. Moving on, we have the State of AI Quarter 2 2023 report from CB Insights, a bunch of economic stats. So we'll just go through them real quick. Uh, there's a stat that global AI funding for the second quarter dropped 38% uh, quarter over quarter. But if you exclude OpenAI's mega, you know, ridiculous round of however many billion it was, without that, it actually has grown by 81%. Uh, deals to AI startups increased uh, for the first time in the five quarters. And of course, that has to do with the economic conditions that's been around. Last year was not a great time for startups. So there were 590 deals in quarter two, with 40 of those being a US-based Startups, generative AI companies attracted four of the top five largest funding rounds in quarter two. The average deal size for AI companies in 2023 grew nearly 50%. Basically, AI companies are getting more money by quite a bit. Yeah, and I, I think this whole space is, it's so interesting, like the funding space. By the way, funny that they had to uh, exclude OpenAI's mega round from uh last year just to kind of like make the numbers make sense. And I think that is, um, there's one question around that, which is pretty fundamental. Like, should you, should you include those sorts of rounds? In other words, are the big rounds to some extent, some of the only ones that matter? Like if it's the case that over long time horizons, the, um, the scale issue just becomes critical and companies that have a moat hit escape velocity with scale, um, then, you know, OpenAI's mega round really becomes one of the only events that matters. If, on the other hand, you think that the space is a lot more dynamic and that in the long run, you know, companies like Adept AI, as sort of smaller companies with a little bit less funding, Cohere, for example, I'm saying smaller. I mean, some of these companies raise on billion-dollar valuations plus. Um, then, you know, then you start to think, okay, the smaller landscape matters more, and that's a fundamental question that I think um, investors are still trying to answer. And there's yeah, a lot of confusion, at least at my end as well, in, in, in terms of what's right there. Yeah, I think it really depends on what you're tracking. So uh, the funding round was actually $10 billion for OpenAI last quarter. Yeah. And in last quarter, the total was $15.2 billion. This quarter, the funding number was $9.4 billion. So if you're looking at sort of a space of how, how many companies are active, how many new players are coming in, how much investing there is in general, 
then you probably want to exclude that number because it's it is an outlier. It's it's Microsoft, I think, for the most part, given money to OpenAI, so it's not really tracking that uh, general trend, let's say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, obviously, I think OpenAI is in the lead as far as competitors in the space because they got ten billion dollars. Yeah, I, I guess what I'm what I'm getting at though is there's sort, of, there's sort of like this story you could tell about the landscape of AI that ultimately um, labs like uh, Google and Google DeepMind now um, and OpenAI are really like the only ones that may matter in the long run, or that you know there's some threshold of funding above which you've like hit escape velocity and now you can afford, for example, enough servers to train the next, or enough GPUs rather, to train the next big model that will bring in enough money to build the next big model and so on. And that below that threshold, you're kind of like, now you're, you're in gradual death mode. And it's sort of unclear, number one, if that threshold exists at all. And number two, where to put it. And there certainly is a story that says, actually that threshold is on the order of billions of dollars of funding, in which case you look at the open AI thing is basically the only investment that matters in the long run. Now that may be a pretty extreme view and, and people will, will differ on that, but like I, I think this is a, a fascinating question as to whether you count that, whether you don't, whether you count nothing else, like what you know, what actually seems to matter in this space. Yeah, I think to put it in perspective, the average deal size for AI companies in 2023 so far is 29 million so that's actually 50 uh, percent more than last year but still obviously not billions there are startups like inflection ai cohere and anthropic that get 100 million or more mega rounds hundreds of millions as we've covered even a billion although 10 billion i think is pretty much <laughs> yeah. just open ai um and some so just some more numbers there's a lot of interesting stuff here uh the ai sector has seen seven new companies reach the one billion valuation mark this quarter uh five of those are generative ai so that can be cohere replit one way which we just discussed synthesia and type uh, typeface uh, five of those are in the U.S., one is in the U.K., and one is in Canada. Yeah. Uh, Cohere, right? Yeah, so Cohere. That's right. We've touched on that. Uh, and apparently Canada is uh, doing pretty well, actually. They've uh, seen a surge in AI funding growing by 1,000% quarter over quarter, which I think it might be it's Cohere probably, as well. Yeah, I was, was going <laughs> to say, it's like, you know, if we're in the business of counting or not counting things, yeah. <laughs> hmm. It's also like I wonder um, who, if, if I recall, well, I think I think Cohere, if I'm not wrong, they have raised from some Canadian VCs. I'm curious, like <laughs> one of the golden rules of Canadian VC is that we always miss all of the important opportunities. So like, you know, in my hometown of Ottawa, Canada, uh, you could say that investors, like seed stage investors had one job over the last 20 years. Their only job was to invest in Shopify. Any other decision that they made was a complete waste of time relative to investing in Shopify. And did they do it? Of course they didn't, because they're like <laughs> they're super risk averse. They like have all the wrong metrics. They don't think like uh, kind of Silicon Valley VCs. So Shopify goes down there to raise. I'm curious. I believe something similar may have happened with Cohere. I don't want to eat my words, but I'm pretty sure. I'm just gonna look them up on Crunchbase. Yeah. So so the yeah that's right. So they're they're big funders for their Series C round. Um, and I'm trying to. Innovia Capital, I actually can't remember where they're based. I would guess in the US, but it's like 
Index Ventures, Oracle, NVIDIA, like SAP, these are like all US-based firms. So there we go again. Yay, oh Canada. And now starting our lightning round, we have China GPT, question mark. Tencent to unleash homegrown AI as big tech races for supremacy. And so we've seen, obviously, a bunch of Chinese companies, Alibaba in particular, create their own homegrown um, like large language models. And this is Tencent saying, hey, we're going to do that too. Um, so they basically are, are saying that there's going to be a, a, a new foundation model they'll put out later this year. So it's not about a model that they have actually built, um, but they are saying it will be, quote, among the best in China. So a lot of kind of promises being made. It's unclear if they'll be among the best in China when it comes out, or if, if their future model will be better than the current um, generation in China. Um, but the uh, anyway, the, the model is one that they've named uh, Hunyuan, which um, is going to be tested across gaming, advertising, cloud computing, uh, fintech, a whole bunch of applications for this thing. And um, one thing to keep in mind, too, is Tencent has been perceived as not necessarily being like the leading Chinese um, generative AI company. Uh, it's sort of lagged behind. We had Baidu that, that built, I think, I think they built the, like the first, uh, if I'm not wrong, the first Chinese generative AI model back in the day. We had Inspur uh, with Source 1.0 or UN 1.0. So a bunch of like Chinese companies have been in this game for a long time. And Tencent's kind of been this like weird um, exception to that race. I mean, I've been surprised not to see them put something out. Um, so here they are. And uh, this is as well on the heels of Alibaba releasing uh, Quen uh, 7 billion and Quen 7 billion chat. So two open source models to compete with the, the Llama series. And so, you know, I, I don't know how much that would have triggered this announcement, but I will say it seems a little weird that they're announcing a model that has not yet been built yet. We will see that story again later today with another American company. Um, but that, yeah, seems like a... I don't know how to put this. It seems like more of maybe a marketing play than a you know typical product play. Yeah, I think uh, we discussed very recently Alibaba releasing these two open sourced AI models, Quen 7B and 7B Chat. They also had the 70 billion models. So I do feel like this could just be a sort of reactive thing of like, oh, we're working on AI too. You know, yeah. Next. What you need to know about Sakana AI, the new startup from a transformer paper co-author. I love that it goes into the headline. This is from VentureBeat. Uh, so Lillian Jones, one of these co-authors of the famous paper, Attention is All You Need, which led arguably to all the stuff, has left to co-found Sakana AI in Tokyo. And this is kind of an interesting company. It is... A pursuing a biomimicry approach, drawing inspiration from collective intelligence in nature, like basically swarms uh, like ants or various other insects. And they plan to use this kind of different approach to create generative AI models. Not to clear how much you know there is to this beyond that, how much clarity there is. But uh, yeah, that's the story. Yeah, there's, they were answering questions about whether they're using language models, and they seem to say, like, eh, we don't know, maybe, kind of, yeah, probably. I mean, like, everybody's using them. They'll be part of the future. That was kind of the vibe. Um, so it seems like they're fairly unsettled in their own minds what they'll be using. Uh, probably this is like, you know, they have a sense, I don't know, in my mind, it's something like we we have a sense of, like, 
architecturally how to do this, but we don't know where we'll get our world model from. So we're, we're not, not sure if it's a language model we'll use. So I don't know. But um, kind of interesting. Uh, they do mention that um, the so the founder, uh, Lion Jones, is going to be joined by uh, the uh, the former head of research at Stability AI, David Ha, which is kind of interesting in and of itself for what it implies about uh, Stability AI's perceived um, trajectory if their head of research is jumping ship to do this. Um, but yeah, and I think also interesting that they're basing it in Tokyo. Like, I don't know what the play is there. They may perceive that there's an untapped talent pool there. You know, maybe the language barrier makes it harder for people to then like leave your company and go join another because that's been a real issue for startups in the generative AI space. Um, I'm sure Andre feels fields uh, uh, <laughs> requests from other companies all the time. He's a very imp- impressive young man. Um, well, I would, I wouldn't. Uh... Uh, build myself up quite quite high but uh, (laughs) yeah I think a lot of it is I just think these two uh, people are based in Japan I know David Ha has been uh, presumably also William Jones so that I think could be part of it of course there's other metrics here I'm sure probably they could get a lot of support and backing as one of the more prominent you know founders in the space Uh, but yeah it's it's Curious because it seems like more of an R and D thing rather than a proper, let's say, business startup. As far as I can tell, yeah, it really does, and and that's always one of the things you know when you talk to people who do go out and found some of these, especially the bigger generative AI companies. Like their big question about geography is always like talent, you know, like and and to some degree national support locally. Um, so you know maybe being the differentiated like the Japanese generative AI company maybe at this point that's worth it because you're not facing the same competition that you would in the U.S. Say, um, and then the, but there was one thing they said about their departure from Google. You know, in the context of like, well, couldn't you have done this at Google, something like that? Um, and they were saying it's just a side effect of big company itis, and that seems to be you know maybe valid applying to Google generally. Not so sure it would apply to DeepMind quite the same way. They said that it's also an issue for OpenAI, which I found really, I'm not sure I agree with that claim. OpenAI still has just a few hundred employees. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I've certainly faced this pressure when fundraising. You always want to tell the story that like, yo, yeah, all these big companies are too slow, whatever. All our competitors are either too big or, or incompetent or whatever. I think you know, OpenAI seems to be just like a, a tough one for, for a lot of these new, newly founded kind of take over the world AGI type companies to, uh, to, to argue around. Well, I think they also said that Google's focus on large language models in particular was a mistake, uh, they say, because that's restrictive. So in that sense, I think that's very true of OpenAI as well. And uh, yeah, I think even within uh, AI research, this sort of nature-inspired approach is fairly niche. So it'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, evolutionary computing is pretty awesome, but also not very, let's say, productized anywhere. It's been around for a while too, eh? And up next, we have AI startup Anthropic raises $100 million from Korean telco giant SK Telecom. So um, if you are not Korean, you've never heard of SK Telecom. Uh, one thing that's worth noting is that um, that Korea kind of has, South Korea obviously has a sort of oligopoly. So there are only a couple of big companies that sort of like own all the tech companies. Samsung, of course, is the number one. And the number two, arguably, is SK Telecom. And 
they are um, known for making investments that are kind of like, um, how would you say, like swinging for the fences, like taking really big gambles that don't always pay off, but you know are, are meant to be really kind of risky. Um, and here they're investing. It's kind of interesting. It's like a an investment deal, but they're investing in Anthropic with the understanding that they are going to that Anthropic is going to build with them a new model. And so this is a $100 million investment. I think it's really interesting because it's not necessarily a positive sign for Anthropic. Like normally, if you're doing really well in this space, especially in a takeover the world space like AGI, you would probably be raising without weird terms like this. Like this is the sort of thing that you do to kind of, it's also, you know, you look at SK Telecom, that's a little bit of an unusual investor too. So it's not like they're raising from Sequoia or you know, some other fund. So putting these things together, you know, we know Anthropic has already raised $450 million in its Series C, like, you know, about three months ago. And so now they're raising a smaller round with this kind of weird edge case. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying that's the case. And, and I, I personally love Anthropic. Um, but, uh, but it, yeah, it's, it kind of seems a little odd and it, it maybe raises a bit of an alarm bell in my mind, but I, who knows? Could be wrong. I agree. It's, it's kind of interesting, uh, a bit surprising, uh, to highlight, uh, for anyone who hasn't been keeping up on Tropic is basically the main competitor of open AI. Their, uh, Claude model is pretty much state of art maybe the only one that's really at the level of chat gpt and it's it's curious yeah why did they go for this after so recently getting another round maybe they want to get more global investments uh it's not too obvious but regardless now they have more money and i'm sure 100 million won't hurt that's true. Actually, one sorry, one little detail I noticed too was uh, Jared Kaplan, who is their, uh, I'm trying to remember if I think he's Anthropics, like head of research or he's their head of R&D or something. Um, he's also the co-author of the Scaling Laws for Neural Language Models paper from 2019, just before GPT-3. He's apparently going to be like taking the lead on this product line. So again, you know, it kind of seems weird to me that like you're going to like pull such a powerful asset uh, in the direction of working on something like this. But again, could be wrong. Just Last story for the section, OpenAI acquires AI Design Studio Global Elimination. So OpenAI has acquired this company. It's a New York-based startup with only around eight uh, employees. It's the first public acquisition in the seven-year history of OpenAI. And supposedly, the team will join OpenAI to work on core products not too much stated about this. Uh, if you do go to the Global Elimination website, there's really not much there. Uh, it lists these eight employees and has a link to a game called Biomes, which is an open source sandbox MMORPG, sort of like Minecraft. So uh, maybe we'll go into making a game. It's not clear. <laughs> yeah, that, that was... Yeah, that, that was one of the things I was trying to figure out, right? Like OpenAI seems to be, one thing they seem to have been doing less of recently is the game playing stuff, the kind of Dota 2 line of effort. I'm not sure where that is, if they're just like, you know, doubling down on language models. But um, yeah, the article said like the game's fate is unclear, but one would presume that the team's work at OpenAI will have less of an entertainment bent. Um, 
seems like that makes sense. I, I maybe wonder if, you know, we've seen Minecraft be used as a gaming environment for a lot of really cool models. So maybe the idea here is that they can help to engineer these sorts of training environments that are more open-ended. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll see. It is interesting that this is OpenAI's first acquisition throughout all of its history. Um, we don't know the terms, so we don't know the valuation or anything else. But one of the things that this uh, makes me think of is like, you know, if you're spending a lot of money doing an acquisition like this at a time when liquidity is really low, interest rates are high, people are less likely to, to spend. Those dollars are yeah, pretty valuable. Um, and and they close anyway the article through that lens saying that OpenAI made $30 million in actual hard cash last year. Um, they're expecting to get to $200 million this year and $1 billion next year. So you know, if that, if that plays out, whew, that's some fast growth. And moving to projects and open source, starting with AI2Olmo, an open language model made by scientists for scientists. So the Ellen Institute for AI has created this new model, AI2Olmo, uh, that will have 70 billion parameters and expected to release in early 2024. It will be an open source language model that provides access and education to the research community with all the elements of a project being made accessible, including data, code, training curves, and evaluation benchmarks. So truly, truly open source. It's being developed in collaboration with AMD and CSC using some supercomputer and also partnering with Surgery and Mosaic ML for Dana and training code. So just based on that, uh, it seems like Yes, it's not out yet, but these partnerships make this a pretty big deal. It seems very likely to actually come about. Yeah, and actually, just for, so just for clarity, it, it hasn't been built yet, but it is in production apparently. Right. So early 2024, they they think it'll come out. Um, I think this is kind of interesting. I mean, the, the Allen Institute for AI uh, was co-founded by one of the founders of Microsoft, and they've got this like sort of nonprofit mission to like you know make AI more accessible and so on. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think that this is a, it's an interesting play. I'm curious about how relevant this model will be when it comes out. Um, one of the challenges that they're running into, and you kind of can read this in the blog post is like, they're trying to stake out a position where they are the open source people, but Meta's sort of already the open source people and they're pumping out models. I suspect that are going to be considerably better than, I could be wrong, but that seem at least positioned to be. Um, uh, kind of better than this category. And so the dimension they seem to be distinguishing themselves on is like, okay, yeah, Meta's open source, but we're really, really open source. Like, look how open source we are. We're so open source, man. And, and the, the way that they explain that is by saying, like like you said, I mean, we're, you know, we're going to absolutely open source everything, not only our data, but the code, we'll release the model, uh, the training curves, evaluation benchmarks, we'll openly share and discuss the ethical and educational consideration. Like, all this stuff has more or less already been done. And I suspect more and more of it will be done by the time this model comes out. So um, interesting to see this push. And, and make no mistake, the Allen Institute for AI is a real legit player. And to your point, Andre, like, absolutely, like those collaborations, especially with AMD, big, big deal. Um, I think it's, a, it's an interesting question as to whether this is going to be materially better than what we, what we see at that point. Yeah, it uh, definitely is. Uh, as you said, this is a real player. Ellen Institute has been around for a long time. I think we covered one of its research papers. It was one of the early uh, 
papers to explore LLMs with tools. Actually, they had this quite a while ago. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting question of whether with Llama two and Falcon already being here, this will actually make a big dent, or if because they really, you know, specifically create this for science and research, uh, whether that might you know, uh, actually make a big difference. And I think it might be the case if you really make it such that it's meant to be analyzed and studied and so on, could be a differentiator. We'll see. And next we have introducing, and I'm going to pronounce this correctly, by the way, this is, I'll explain why in a minute. Introducing EDFIX, a an open reproduction of state-of-the-art visual language model. So I'm French Canadian. Uh, when I see uh, a, a little pun on the Asterix and Eobidix series, which is the Asterix and Obelix series for you Anglo bastards, um, I will call it out. So it's essentially Edithix is one of the, the characters, I think it's the dog from this, this uh, series of, of comic books. And essentially what they're doing here is they're taking, um, they're, they're reproducing Flamingo, basically. So Flamingo was this model that DeepMind made quite a while ago now uh, that is private still. And what they've done, so this model can take in text and image inputs, and then it can only generate text outputs. And so the sorts of things you could do with this that you couldn't do with, say, like a you know, GPT 3.5 is give it an image of you know, some, like, uh, I don't know, blueprint or something, and then ask it a question about the blueprint, and it could answer those questions, for instance. Um, so a really interesting modality. Um, and now kind of moving into the open source, we haven't seen especially good models that can do this before. So that's kind of exciting. And um, the way they're doing this is by combining together Llama, uh, so Llama 1, the, the OG Llama, and another model called OpenClip. So Clip, you might recall, was the OpenAI model way back in the day that was open sourced, uh, that uh, essentially allowed you to caption in images. So basically do image, um, image semantics, image understanding. So they're combining OpenClip, which is a, a more recent open source version of it, with Llama. And in between, they have a layer of weights that they're training themselves to kind of be the glue that maps Llama, the language understanding piece, onto the vision image understanding piece clip. And um, the whole thing is goes up to 80 billion parameters. They've got two different models. One is nine and the other is 80. Um, so pretty interesting development. Um, Hugging Face, obviously, really big into open source these days. So it's kind of a, a noteworthy project. And um, yeah, they, the, the thing, one of the things they really lean on here is everything is open source. And that includes the data set. You know, no, no risk, presumably, of copyright infringement. You know, this is a kind of open source on top of open source type of project. Again, very consistent with the, the Hugging Face philosophy. Yeah, they also released this new 115 billion token dataset called Obelix. So it's a mix of these openly available datasets, Wikimedia, Wikipedia, public multimodal dataset, Lion, and now this new, very, very big, uh, this new Obelix thing consists of Am I, I'm assuming Obelix has like a, another French pronunciation. It is, you know, but you're right. It, that's yeah. right. Uh, it consists of 141 interleaved image text documents uh, and contains 353 million images uh, just for context. So yeah, it's huge. Uh, this is as good as this uh, Flamingo model from DeepMind. There's a research paper. There are insights and learnings from the model's training. Uh, so yeah, really cool for researchers, uh, but it is built on Llama 1, so it's not commercial. 
Yeah, and I actually, this is making me wonder. So Flamingo came out in um, April 2022, apparently. So we're now, what, we're August 2023. So yeah, so about a year and a half between Flamingo you know, privately being developed by DeepMind and now open source replication. Kind of tracks, you know, the timelines that we've seen historically, kind of an interesting data point there. Yeah, it's uh, there's also Open Flamingo, which I think came out earlier. Mm-hmm. This yeah. one is uh, actually nine billion and eighty billion parameter sized. So you know, if you wanna go big, you can really go back <laughs> with this one. Last story introducing Arthur Bench, the most robust way to evaluate large language models. So this is from the company Arthur, and they have developed a suite of monitoring tools for LLMs to help businesses integrate them into their operations. So they, this benchmark tool suite is an open source evaluation tool that allows businesses to compare LLMs, prompts, and hyperparameters and so on. Uh, I think this is somewhat interesting uh, to highlight just because we have touched on, you know, it's kind of hard to evaluate large language models. You can have task-specific things, but, you know, is this as good as ChatGPT is kind of an, a hard question to answer. Absolutely. And, and one of the themes that we've touched on, I think, in previous episodes is this question of, like, how essential is, like, language model search going to be? Like you imagine for any given task you have, there's probably a like a weirdly fine-tuned language model, open source, that already exists for you to use. And like finding it is like finding a needle in a, ha- in a haystack. And so because you can't find it, you, sh- you, you might go to like a GPT-4, a paid model that's generally very capable. So it's like a catch-all, um, but that may not be as good as it's possible to be or as cheap as it's possible to be for your application. And so um, anyway, it's int- interesting to see this as a continuation of that, a bet on the idea that you know, helping people to quickly and robustly evaluate their language models is part of that search process. So, uh... yeah, and and actually related to that, they also unveiled the generative assessment project, which is more of a research initiative. It's not a tool that is meant to explore the strengths and weaknesses of the language uh, models from industry leaders like OpenAI and Tropic and uh, meta and yeah it's really kind of comparing and contrasting uh, they have a couple of things out already comparing for instance uh, hallucination of which uh, top llms uh, seem to hallucinate more or less which one uh, hedge on answers instead of actually giving an answer so yeah very interesting yeah actually the uh that's interesting i hadn't checked out the hallucinations one it's quite interesting um, yeah, because this is a comparison that I, I, I haven't seen done before, uh, with especially the proprietary models, right? Because we don't see the detailed papers. We, we, we see technical reports now. We don't see that level of openness. So yeah, seeing these side by side is quite interesting. Um, and they're big differences. Like I'm surprised at how big these differences are, actually. Um, yeah, hallucination-wise, I'm just looking here, and it's like Claude 2 seems to hallucinate like less than GPT-4. Um, but it avoids answering a lot more often. It's all the stuff that like, you know, if you've used these models, you'll, you'll kind of be like, yeah, I already kind of knew that, but it's cool to see it validated. This is a really cool experiment, actually. Yeah, so uh, Arthur, good job. <laughs> all right, we're moving on to research and advancements now. And our first paper is called Self-Alignment with in- Instruction Back Translation. And this is a paper from Meta or Meta AI. 
Um, so quite interesting and uh, sort of a, a simple idea in a weird way that works weirdly well. So the idea here is, okay, you have a, a base model, like a, a, let's say a glorified text autocomplete system. You train it to autocomplete on the whole, the whole internet. Um, and it's really, really good at autocomplete, just like GPT-3 was back in the day. But we don't necessarily want just an autocomplete system. And so we want one that we can interact with more naturally, that we can give plain language instructions to, and that model will just execute those instructions. In order to do that, you need to do something called instruction fine-tuning. Basically train the model with a bunch of instructions and then the response to those instructions and get the model to kind of index really heavily on that type of interaction. So fine-tune it on that data set, then it'll get good at that stuff. Good, that's called instruction fine-tuning. Now this is kind of addressing a, a really interesting challenge in this sort of fine-tuning where the availability of that data is quite limited. It's, it's like really hard to find big data sets with like, you know, instructions and then the execution of those instructions because, well, that takes a lot of time for humans to produce. And so Meta here is going to ask the question, okay, how about this? What if we take a small number of those sorts of examples where we have an instruction and we have an execution on that instruction? We use that to kind of prime the pump, train the model a little bit on that. Um, and then we're going to introduce... Uh, documents, a set of documents pulled from all over the internet. You know, maybe some of these are like medical documents, whatever. And what we'll do is we'll actually ask our language model to generate an instruction that it could imagine being useful with respect to that document. So, for example, I don't know. You have a document that explains um, uh, that explains the uh, out of the plot of a movie, and then you might you might have it generate then an instruction like uh, who's the main character or like describe the relationship between the main characters, right? That would be an instruction that makes sense given that document. And so it's going to look at all these documents for each one. It's going to generate instructions that it thinks make sense. And it's going to generate uh, the responses to those instructions. Now, then you're going to essentially train it on its own generated data set. But before you do, you're also going to get it to rank the instructions that it has generated and it's going to pick the top ones, the ones that it thinks are most useful, and only retrain on those. And that seems to be the key that really allows it to allows this whole loop to come alive. So give it a bunch of new documents, have it generate a whole bunch of different instructions and their potential completions for that document, and then have the language model itself review its own generated data and filter it out, filter all the crap, and then pick only the best ones, and then retrain itself on the best ones. This is a really interesting dynamic. I'm still kind of trying to figure out why this works because one of the um, the things we've talked about actually on the show before is this idea of collapse, where if you train a language model on its own output or on other AI generated text, like eventually it degrades into like just a gibberish spewing machine. It kind of spins out. That doesn't seem to happen here, at least for this fine tuning task. I think the fact that it's fine tuning, the fact that we're only looking at instruction following might be part of this. I think another part of this is probably also the stack ranking and filtering, where the model's kind of getting to use its expertise at filtering to inform how it generates. So kind of trading off skills, maybe adding a little information in the process. Um, but this is actually, I think, a pretty fundamentally interesting paper. And uh, DeepMind's come out with a, a similar one with RL, I think, uh, earlier this week. We're talking about this one, but kind of similar idea. Um, models generating their own training data and using some sort of filtering approach like this. Exactly. Yeah, it's if you look at uh, the statistics, it's pretty impressive. They start out with these uh, 3,200 examples, 
and then they generate um, uh, 500,000 uh, examples to train on these instructions. And if you look at the results, they're pretty surprising. Uh, they, you know, with instruction fine tuning just based on this data, they compared to Falcon Instruct, to uh, Claude, to um, Guanaco, some of these models, and more often than not, this model does better than all of them, or or as good, uh, especially compared to Falcon Instruct. But even compared to Claude, this model is better sixty percent of the time, uh, supposedly in in terms of being preferable. So surprisingly impressive results uh and it i guess goes to show still how much we don't know right because there's been we've also seen things like fine-tuning on uh like textbooks and selecting very few high quality instructions so it's just sort of still pretty mysterious and this is showing something that works but why does it work why do other things not work it's yeah, absolutely. And, and like to add fuel to the fire, there's there's this um really interesting figure where they kind of show, okay, like for, for different data set sizes, what is the, the the lift that you get uh with your 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 stack filtering basically? So if you go through and be more picky about how how high up in the rankings uh a, a generated um piece of instruction tuning data has to be before you actually retrain on it. What they find is as the data set size increases, um, first of all, if you do no self-curation, then essentially you're just repeating the same collapse experiments we've seen before. So you don't, you don't improve at all, you get a little bit worse. Um, if you do start to prune, start to um, stack rank and then select, the more selective you are, the better the outcome, like the better this thing scales with more and more data. And what we're seeing is as you grow the size of that synthetic data set, the performance just keeps going up and up and up. And that kind of ties into something we've even heard Sam Altman say, where he's starting to speculate about, you know, maybe at some point we reach a point where our models are have enough latent knowledge that they can generate data that they kind of uh, that's that's good enough for them to self improve in this way. He was referring to that as the synthetic data event horizon, and you know, th this is still fine tuning. This is still you know a very specific example. But it makes me wonder a little bit: Are we reaching that point in some, you know, in some dimensions of the training process? Um, that's more speculative, obviously. But to your point, Andre, that's part of the question set that we're left. With. Like, there's so much we don't know about how these things work. Yeah, if I, I'll do one piece of speculation, and I think also the unlabeled data part of this is maybe important. The fact that they don't just generate things from scratch; they have external data that's coming in. Right, right uh, is an important piece of this. But uh, yeah, definitely this paper made, I think, some waves and is, is pretty interesting. And I found also probably related to this, it's uh, interesting to note there was also a survey called Automatically Correcting Large Language Models Surveying the Landscape of Diverse Self-Correction Strategies. So this is a survey that covers you know, dozens of papers with many different approaches related to self-training, self-refining, reinforcement learning, et cetera. Very long summary. So if this is of interest to you, you know, take a look at that. Next 
paper, DeepMind's AlphaStar benchmark improves a RHEL offline agent with 90% win rate against the state-of-the-art AlphaStar supervised agent. AlphaStar is this model that DeepMind has trained to play the game StarCraft II, which is a very challenging kind of strategy game, right? And it has been a benchmark for reinforcement learning, where you learn from trial and error to control an agent. So Go, for instance, but you, know, you can imagine going from Go to StarCraft is pretty challenging. And this one focuses on this context of offline RL. So that means instead of in typical RL, you're just doing a trial and error. So you're basically you know, executing actions in the environment and see what happens. Uh, you learn as you go. Offline reinforcement learning is quite different. It's just you get a bunch of collected data of someone doing stuff in an environment that isn't you, and then you are supposed to learn from that data how to do it. It's more like supervised learning, although it's not exactly that because you're not given the right action. You're just given the outcomes of these actions taken by someone else. And um, arguably, offline reinforcement learning is much uh, more scalable because you can collect the data, you don't need to have uh, online continuous interaction with the environment, and um, then you know you can do this large data paradigm that we've had. All that to say, you know, this is pretty significant because now you have this uh, agent that outperforms uh, an agent that trained from supervised data via reinforcement learning. Yeah, and, and really, that, like that offline thing is a huge deal. Um, you can kind of think about why it would be harder for an agent to learn offline than online. If you think about yourself trying to learn chess just by watching other people play rather than playing yourself, right? Like if you had a database just of like a ton of chess matches and you watched them all, yeah, you would learn some things for sure. But there's something about being able to choose your own next move seeing how the world responds to your choice and then having to make the next move choice again and, and iterating from there. Like being the person who, um, who makes that choice and seeing your environment respond is much more information rich than studying other people's games. That's kind of like one of the central challenges they're looking to overcome with this. And, um, and one of the challenges as well is like you have to hope that the games other people have played sort of like cover all the scenarios that you yourself would be interested in playing. And so there's this important notion of what's known as coverage. Um, the more kind of state action pairs are, are missing from the, the offline data set, the lower the coverage, the harder the, the problem is to solve. And so um, this is quite interesting. One of the, their big contributions here is the, the, just the uh, evaluation strategy that they use. Um, and so you know they basically take a bunch of agents, uh, one of which is the very hard player that comes with StarCraft II, uh, which is actually known to be really good. And, um, and so they'll use that. And then they use a bunch of different agents trained in, in different ways. And essentially, the idea is you have a new agent you want to compare. Good, good. Throw them at our, our testing suite of a bunch of, I think it's seven different agents. And we'll create this like matrix of how often you beat each agent. And um, uh, and the yeah, th that's kind of the the fingerprint that tells you how good your system is. And then they built their own that got a ninety percent win rate on the uh, the hardest one. And again, using uh, so, sorry on on Alpha Star using this offline reinforcement learning strategy. So again, not even learning from its own moves, but rather from the moves of others. So kind of really interesting phase transition here. Um, 
Maybe last thing to say is, you know, the, the, the cost of online learning is a lot higher than the cost of offline learning, as you said, Andre. And so uh, the, you could imagine reaching a point where it actually makes sense to go potentially all offline just because that manage, you know, once you have a big enough data set and models that can learn offline efficiently enough, uh, you kind of reach that escape velocity where the benefit of that data set size starts to outstrip the benefits of being able to do your online learning. Realistically, I expect these two to be combined in the near future, but uh, still sort of interesting to see that, that uh, dichotomy play out here. Exactly. Yeah, offline RL has also been kind of a big deal in robotics. It's been one of the big areas for it. So that showcases, let's say, a more practical application. And uh, yeah, they released this data set that showed that you can do offline RL well against just supervised learning. The point, I think, is that you can now use this to uh, compare offline with online RL. Uh, where you can actually interact with the environment and see how far you can get. Moving on to the lightning round. First, we have Raven, in-context learning with retrieval augmented encoder-decoder language models. So this is a new language model that combines retrieval-based and generative approaches to improve in-context learning. In-context learning is when you want the model to do something it hasn't been explicitly trained to do by just giving it some examples. Retrieval augmented language models are things where instead of just doing this autocomplete thing that language models do, they have some external database they can query. Uh, so that's the retrieval part. And that gets uh, to be there as part of the input. And so this model uses this architecture and has a retrieval mechanism to retrieve relevant information from a knowledge base and is shown to work really well on um, this in-context learning task. Yeah, um, I, I'm just looking at one of the figures here that seems kind of interesting. They're, they're showing like the number of in-context examples um, versus the, uh, the, the accuracy score of the outputs, basically. And there's this interesting phenomenon where the bigger models actually like do more poorly at first with a small number of in-context examples. But eventually, like they just rock it up and somehow are able to like latch onto something and then outperform all the others. Um, sort of, uh, sort of interesting. It's, it's figure two. Um, it kind of makes me think of like, you know, when you have a larger model, generally you're more at risk of overfitting um, when you have a, a small amount of data. This is in context learning, though. So, sort of, it, it makes me wonder: is something similar happening here? Like we, we've heard obviously there are analogies, deep analogies between in-context learning and fine-tuning. And so that kind of makes me think like, are we actually seeing a similar phenomenon? Are we really starting to enter a, a domain here where, um, yeah, where in-context learning really does look more and more like pre-training even? Uh, I don't know. It's sort of an interesting question, but... Uh, and up next, we have BOLA, Benchmarking and Orchestrating LLM Augmented Autonomous Agents. And so this is um, just a, a really interesting overview of a bunch of different types of autonomous agents based on language models. So you might remember, like we, we've talked about a bunch of these. There's like AutoGPT. Basically, you take your language model and you wrap it up in a framework that makes it behave like an agent. Um, there's Baby AGI. There's a bunch of other kind of uh, Super AGI is another one. Anyway, a bunch of other uh, frameworks like that. And so one of the questions that they're going to try to answer in this paper is um, 
what is the, the best architecture? What's the best way to set up these agents so that they succeed? So that's one question is how do I bundle? How do I wrap up my agent? What kinds of prompts do I give it? A separate question is what is the large language model that I should choose as my backbone? To make these agents work. So you can imagine you kind of have these two different uh, dimensions, the two, two different criteria. You could choose any architecture and you could choose any language model. And so they sort of experiment with a bit of a matrix of different combinations of language models and architectures in a way that we haven't really seen before. And I um, just want to flag a couple of, of the architectures that they look at. Won't go into anything in depth here, but just to give you a sense of the kind of flavor, the, the strategies people are using and how they differ. Um, so one strategy that they use is uh, called zero-shot LAA. So this is one architecture. So we're not talking about which language model you're using. You could use this for any language model. Uh, this is the architecture, the way you bundle your language model to make it agent-like. And uh, so basically the way zero-shot LAA works is you take in the task instruction that you want your system to perform. Uh, you'll turn it into a, a basically a zero-shot prompt, basically convert the plain English instruction into like a clear, um, hey, okay, do this. And then you feed it to, the, the large, to a large language model and instruct it to determine the next step. Uh, it registers the environment's response and then saves it to memory and then decides whether or not it needs to take another action. So generate another zero-shot prompt. Um, but the thing is, you could imagine taking that basic setup and adding a step where you explicitly ask the language model to plan out its next move using what's known as chain of thought uh, prompting. So you might say like, let's think about this step by step this is the classic chain of thought uh, prompting uh, example. And so this adds an extra level of deliberation. And this is instead of being called zero shot LAA, it's called zero shot think LAA. Um, and then uh, you could also augment that further by not only having the chain of thought prompt, but also by adding few shot examples of the sort of task you want it to perform. So show it for for instance, like you know, before you generate your output, just so we're really clear, here's the kind of output that I might want you to generate based on different scenarios. So you're sort of finding new ways to introduce information to refine your prompts in these systems. And then there are uh, anyway a couple more uh, agents like that. And so the, one of the main arguments they're going to make in this paper is, you know, often we think of you know, creating auto GPT or using one of these agents and just throwing them at our problem. The problem with that, though, is that your agent kind of has to solve the whole problem in one shot. What if, they wonder, you could actually have a central controller that farms out tasks to individual agents that each specialize in a subdomain? So if you're trying to do some kind of like AI system that interacts with the web, maybe instead of having one agent that crawls the web, finds things and clicks on them, you should have one agent that's responsible for searching or understanding the area, the, the environment, and a separate agent that's responsible for choosing what to click on or what the next action should be. And to have a kind of central controller that chooses what goes to which agent. And that is what they're going to build. So that's the system that they call BOLA, B-O-L-A-A. -A, and um, they compare its performance to a bunch of these other frameworks, and they they base their their um, Bola agent on all these different language models. They try a whole bunch of like a dozen different ones or more. And um, anyway, there, there's some really interesting uh, results there. But maybe I'll, I'll pause there, Andre. What, what, what did you think of this? Yeah, uh, it's very cool. This is coming from Salesforce, and um, agents in general 
is a big deal, right? We want to have AI that is ultimately able to execute sort of long-running tasks without you babysitting it. Probably that's why out of GPT and BabyLM and all these things are interesting. And that's uh, something that still is definitely not within reach for language models. Uh, like, yes, you can make them agents, but so far from what I've heard and seen, they're just going to not do it. They're going to mess up. And it's interesting reading this paper, seeing that there really hasn't been very much research. There's been some of these projects like Outer GPT, and there's been a couple papers from this year uh, on React and ReWoo, uh, but that's it, right? So it's a pretty important paper in the sense that this is a very uh, young area of research that has a lot of impact potentially. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And, and to your point about being like kind of untrodden ground, and there's so much like fresh stuff to be to be discovered here. There is some weird shit going on in the table. I think they have like it's called Table One, where, where they actually look at the performance of their various agents trained on various large language models, or sorry, uh, using the, they use various large language models, where you find like this phenomenon where as you scale the base model like the language model up, normally that should make things go better, right? So we're used to the idea of scaling leading to better performance. We have cases where, for example, um, let me see. So Llama, Llama 2, 13 billion uh, does, uh, let me see. Yeah, does like half as well, sorry. Yeah, half as well as Llama 2, sorry, no. Yeah, does half as well as Llama 2, uh, uh, sorry, I'm sorry. Llama 2 with 70 billion parameters does ha like half as well as Llama 2 with 13 billion. So it's a big leap in scale, and yet the performance like goes down a lot for uh, some agents. So this is like uh, with um, Plan Act and React, which is I think quite surprising. And you see this again for Vicuña seven billion to thirteen billion. Um, or sorry, actually, there the weird thing is there's a sudden leap. Like if you look at Vicuña at seven billion, your performance is like 0.6. At thirteen billion, this is for the Bola model, a Bola framework. It jumps up to 0.53, so you almost have this like sudden like burst of of agent like behavior on just a doubling of the base parameter count, which I think is kind of fascinating and surprising. Yeah, so lots of uh, questions to explore here. And one last story we have from Quantum Magazine: Risky Giant Steps Can Solve Optimization Problems Faster. We won't go deep on this one, but uh, if you haven't read Quanta, it's a very good magazine that explores pretty deep scientific uh, research in a very approachable way. So this is getting into some pretty deep questions as to general optimization strategies, which is what you do with language models with neural nets, you optimize them given data. And this is uh, going to some new findings that are kind of counterintuitive to what people usually do of optimizing with consistent steps and not these larger steps that this uh, article explained. Yeah, like one sort of quick way to sketch this out maybe is like, you know, you can think of a language model as a hill climbing problem where like, so imagine you have, let's say a two parameter language model, there's X and there's Y. So you get to walk around in X, Y space. 
And the performance of the model is the elevation. So if you, oh, look at that. If I walk around the X direction, the performance goes up. Like I'm, I'm climbing this hill. Uh, oh, let me move a little bit along the Y. Like, oh, look, it's going up even more. And now like a language model is basically that, but with like just a, a disgusting number of, of parameters. So instead of a two-dimensional thing, you're I don't know, climbing an 80 billion <laughs> dimensional thing. Don't think too much about it. But the, the upshot is the, the, the key thing people have thought for a long time is if you're going to do this, you should be taking small steps. Step a little bit and notice, oh, the elevation's going up. Okay, so I'll keep going in this direction. Okay, it's still going up, so I'm going to keep going in this direction. And what they're showing in this, uh, in this paper, in this article, is that sometimes taking a giant step instead of a small step uh, actually gives better results. And this may be because it's kind of knocking you way out of a, a local hill. You know, sometimes the problem with taking small steps is that you end up like climbing a little hill and you get to the top of the hill and you're like, oh, great, like I'm, I, I'm king of the mountain, but you might be missing Mount Everest that's just a little further away. If you took a bigger step, you might have gotten there. So that's kind of part of the, the gist of this. Um, like you said, Andre, a pretty fundamental question in optimization theory. So no, no use to going into it in too much detail. But um, anyway, that's the rough gist. Yeah. In this metaphor, by the way, you are unable to see. You're just randomly walking around yes. outside. But Good point. <laughs> anyway, yes. Moving on to policy and safety. First, we have China's new AI regulations begin to take effect. So these guidelines for AI activity and management have taken effect starting on August 15th. These are provisional guidelines. And yeah, they are pretty significant. They require platforms providing AI services to register and undergo a security uh, review. AI generated content uh, content will be mandated to have labels and the service providers will be held accountable for content created through their platforms, their monetary fines. It's, yeah, you know, as far as regulation of AI that is already active, I think this is pretty much the strongest one there is, if not the only significant uh, guidelines that are in action anywhere. It, it very much seems that way that, you know, one of the things that they highlight, and, and obviously we've talked about the uh, the copyright debates and whether OpenAI or, or whoever else can use New York Times content, for instance, to train their model. Well, one of the things that uh, comes out of this these requirements is that foundation models need to be sort uh, the data. Sorry for foundation models needs to come from quotes legitimate sources and respect intellectual property rights of the creators. And so, um, kind of interesting that this is a, a hard position being taken here on that issue. And um, obviously, maybe not not terribly uh, precedent setting in the West, but sort of interesting it's being done there. And then the other thing is. You know, over here, we have something called, well, over here in the United States, um, you guys have something called Section 230, uh, which is the essentially the, the ruling that's, or the law that says um, that uh, platforms cannot be held responsible for the content that's generated by their users. You know, so if I go to Facebook and, and I like, I don't know, I threaten somebody, um, Facebook cannot be held liable for my posts. Like I am, there's the platform, you know, the idea nominally is they're not a publisher. This is not their view. And so they're protected uh, by section 230. Big, big question that came up, including at uh, the congressional hearings we've seen on AI recently is whether section 230 should apply to generative AI. So should open AI, for example, be held responsible if chat GPT says something about someone that under any other circumstance would be considered a threat or libel or worse. 
And um, right now, the the, uh, the position of the Chinese here is well, basically, no, nothing like that. Um, you know, you're you're gonna if you're a service provider, you're gonna be held accountable for anything created through your platform. So that's quite a, a an interesting uh, again, maybe precedent setting thing. I don't really know how the, the interaction there goes across the Pacific, but um, certainly is where the discussion around Section two hundred and thirty seems to be headed in the states. Yeah, so again, pretty significant step. And uh, we've seen things like apps being pulled down from the uh, Apple App Store as a result of this. Uh, so it's very much affects the ecosystem of AI in uh, China. And, and, you know, as we've seen with a lot of these global software initiatives with the uh, uh, GDPR in the EU, just this being active there may impact the development of AI also in other countries as a byproduct. Yeah, yeah. And actually, one one last thing I, I will flag, I think it really useful to notice the whole of government approach being used here, which I do think will be necessary in the States as well. But they're saying like these generative AI measures, they come from a joint effort between six government agencies. And there are a whole bunch, everything from like what's known as the Cyberspace Administration of China, uh, the National Development and Reform Commission, and the Ministry of Science and Tech. There are a bunch of others too. So really a whole of government thing. Why? Because, well, AI is is an everything technology. And so you really need the central centralized coordination. Hmm. And speaking of guidelines, next story is the Associated Press sets AI guidelines for journalists. Uh, so the Associated Press, AP, is you know a pretty big deal as far as news goes. And it is setting these guidelines on using generative AI in news governing. Journalists can experiment with ChatGPT, but ch- uh, should not use it to create publishable content. Any output from a generative AI pl- uh, platform should be treated as unvetted source material and subject to AP's existing sourcing standards. AP will not allow AI to alter photos, video, audio, and will only use AI-generated images if they are subject, if they have this subject of a news story, uh, and so on. So, um, yeah, it seems like a pretty reasonable set of guidelines, and probably something that other uh, media outlets will follow. Yeah, it, it's also uh, there's there's a whole bunch of. Uh stuff below the surface here too where so first of all i mean ap they're saying is the kind of default standard they have this thing called the ap style book that uh, they point out the majority of news articles use or at least modify this ap style book uh, to write articles like the one you're reading right now and so um this is a very influential move you know ap is is uh, a leader that a lot of people follow um, and then they they also point out like that this is being these standards are being set at the same time that AP signed an agreement with um, uh, ChatGPT or sorry with with OpenAI that is uh, to use its news stories to train generative AI models and so um, they're kind of they're doing both this is really interesting like we got to use the technology for sure but uh, let's let's set these guardrails so it's an interesting compromise here. Yeah, uh, I agree, uh, and also the. Don't have a story, I think, uh, separately, but it is worth noting that another recent story was that the New York Times has prohibited using its content to train AI models as opposed to AP, which had a direct partnership. Uh, so yeah, it's you know very much, I think, as you discussed at one point, news 
media is a big chunk of the training data sets of these models, as far as we can tell, based on the open ones like Common Crawl, they make up something like Wikipedia, you know, a very significant uh, chunk of it. So it does matter whether the data can be used for training or not. Last story, AI detection tools falsely accuse international students of cheating for the markup. So there is the software turn it in that can you know, say whether something seems AI generated or not. And it turns out that it uh, labeled over 90% of a student's paper as AI generated uh, when it was not. Uh, and this is for an international uh, student. And then the Stanford computer scientists found more generally that AI detectors have a clear bias against non-native English speaker, flagging their writing as AI generated 61% of the time. So clearly another instance or example in which these detectors are just not something you want to use uh, as educators. Yeah. And it's also, I guess, on the heels, what, last week or the week before of OpenAI retiring their, uh, their generative AI detector thing? Um, for kind of similar reasons. I mean, they had an outrageously high false positive rate. So basically flagging things as AI generated when they weren't and, and also vice versa. So, um, you know, seems seems like a uh, an indication that the detection side is going to lose to the generation side in the long run when it comes to, uh, to generative AI uh, text writing. Last section, synthetic media and art. First story is... Inside the AI porn marketplace where everything and everyone is for sale. So this is quite an article. Uh, it is about uh, Civit AI where uh, users can browse and download AI models that generate pornographic scenarios using real images of real people, uh, script without consent. Uh, they host a lot of AI models that are specialized for different purposes. Uh, there's some very explicit examples in the article. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's I found this quite surprising that there's a whole website where you can just search for whatever specialized model. There's like a model, I think, for uh, to give one of the less bad examples of like a woman laying down on a bed with her feet up or something like that's one model that's specifically for that pose and there's a lot more so yeah it is kind of a nightmare uh in the case that you can use this to you know make fake porn yeah and, and like to kind of brain hack yourself too right to reward hack yourself like there's a certain almost civilizational question here where you know, if you can generate arbitrary stimulus on a on a screen, like rearrange those pixels in whatever whatever way uh, you know floats your boat, and those things can get more and more extreme, and you gradually get decoupled from reality. It's it's a sort of uh, almost philosophical issue uh, as much as anything. And it does it does remind me of um, remember the, uh, the for a long time there was a subreddit um, uh, the uh, the deep fake subreddit which was pulled down quite famously. Uh, as people were actually exchanging kind of tips on how to refine these models and even posting, I think they, I think they even posted model weights. Certainly there were communities where that was happening. And so this sort of seems like the same thing, but now off Reddit, where it can't necessarily be uh, be policed or, or monitored. As yeah, I should clarify to make sure uh, I don't get this wrong. The site isn't... Uh specifically for this uh, thing. Civit AI is more generally for different stable diffusion models. Uh, it's 
generally known that you can you can customize an existing text-to-image model with relatively little data to generate a certain art style or gen- certain image type, even a certain uh, person. So there's all sorts of different models on here, and I suppose it looks like they just allow uh, also explicit ones uh, as well. Um, and then there's also another platform called Mage, that uh, offers AI models for generating personalized content, including explicit images for premium members. So just one of these things that we're going to have to deal with, right? And uh, another example where if you do open source things, this is one of the byproducts you'll have. Last story also about text-to-image or generally image modification, AI botched their headshots from the Wall Street Journal. And yeah, this is kind of an overview article, nothing too specific, but it goes into various examples where when making photos for professional use cases like LinkedIn, uh, various AI platforms generally can mess up when dealing with non-white uh entries, uh, for instance, uh, black, Latina, and Asian uh, women. And there's many concrete examples in this one. Uh, it's it's already been shown in research. It's kind of a, a well-known problem. But in this case, now that it's being commercialized and people are trying to use these tools, uh, it's good to sort of highlight that this is a possible issue and it is happening. And you know, if you're a company working on this, you definitely want to be wary and, and do your best, I suppose. Yeah, it, I guess big challenge in terms of like the the data sets too, making sure the data sets are balanced. And you know, there's always this, anyway. It's all the usual trade offs where it's like if you, if you're if you go to max out the amount of data that you have, so the model performs better overall, then you're going to have this disparity where yeah, the data that's more common. So in this case, you know, you have white white skin tones, that sort of thing. It'll be more common, be overrepresented. Your model probably do better with those, and then like with with other folks, uh, you'll get worse outputs. And so the you know central question is often like, okay, well, do I balance my data set by sacrificing you know like the maybe even the bulk of my data just to make sure that the outputs are, are equal across the board, or how do I trade these things off? Um, part of that comes down to you know loss functions and and data augmentation and stuff like that. So very challenging technical problem given the data sets and and obviously the consequences of not addressing it are uh, uh, are not insignificant yeah and um just one more thing i think it maybe is interesting to note we often use the word alignment when we talk about chatbots this is another instance of alignment when you want uh, ai to take your the image of your face generate professional LinkedIn photos, a failure case is, let's say, uh, messing up your image by making your skin tone different or adding clothing that doesn't make sense. So this is another kind of example of alignment is we want the AI to do what we want to do, and we need to figure out how to do that. Absolutely. Okay, well, that's it for this episode that is hopefully coming out today or tomorrow. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening. As always, uh, feel free to email us at contact at lastweekinai with any suggestions or feedback or thoughts. As always, we would appreciate if you share and review and subscribe and all those fun things. But regardless, please do keep doing it.